going to turn to our um, Bibles. Um, if you've got one with you, do uh, turn to 1 Peter, and we'll look up 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll read the first 12 verses there. 1 Peter chapter 2. I was listening to um, a podcast just on the way down in the car, and um, uh, the man who was speaking, who's a minister, was saying that as he comes before God's word, he, he thinks, what is it here? What is it in front of me now, which is going to make my heart sore at who Jesus is? What is it here that is going to make me uh, wow at who our God is? So as we come before this, let, let me just pray that that would be the case. As we come before God's word, that there will be something here really which, which makes us wonder, which makes us um, sore in our hearts at who the Lord is. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your precious word. What a gift this is, that you have spoken to people like us, that you have gifted us with uh, your very message uh, to humanity in uh, a written form like this. There's no doubt that this is from you, and oh, what precious truths it contains. So as we uh, come before your word now, as we open it up, we pray Uh, That as obedient servants, Lord, you would speak to us, that we would see wonderful things in your word, things that uh, cause us to be drawn closer to our Saviour, things which cause us to be humble before you, things which do our souls good. May that be the case, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's read, shall we? Um, 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Come into him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it's also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conduct honourable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation.
Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak or vice, but as bondservants of God. Honour all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the king. Amen. This reads God's word. Do turn back to um, that part of um, God's word, 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm sure you can tell it there. Yeah, I read these um, words uh, from 1 Peter just a couple of months ago while on holiday and um, thought there's just so much rich, richness in there really. It would be good to uh, look into them further. And that, that's, a, that's a privilege uh, of coming to preach actually. Like, I think for any here who, who do have opportunity to preach, I don't preach uh, very often, but it, it's, it's a great privilege to spend time just really uh, looking into a passage, really trying to, trying to think through and, and, and letting God deal with, uh, with you as you read these things. So it's been a real blessing for me to spend time um, in these words over, um, over uh, the last few weeks, really. We're going to be looking mainly, in fact, really entirely at verses 9 to 12 today. Uh, but it, it's a harvest service today, isn't it? Keith had sent me an email saying it's a harvest service. Uh, I don't know what you guys normally do at harvest. Um, uh, always a bit of a, a, a kind of a, a strange event, really, in, in the life of the church. What, what is the harvest service? What, why do we do it? And um, I think for, for me and my church in Wiltshire, we, we've, been, uh, we, we've been discussing some of those things over the years. So should we have a harvest service? Uh, we're not really a farming community, uh, although we do have a couple of farmers in the church. But what is it that we do? Why is it that we do it? Should, should we carry on doing it? Uh, should, we, should we not have a harvest service? Uh, and I think the conclusion uh, that we've come to is that it's just good, like harvest is a, a good opportunity to think about what God has done for us, given us our daily bread and, and all sorts of other gifts too. Uh, and it's a good opportunity to share some of those good gifts uh, with other people. So we've carried on doing harvest. Um, but but as, I've, as I've thought about harvest, I think one of the the real opportunities that harvest gives us is to stop and to wonder at God's abundant goodness to us. We uh, often uh, pray uh, for our daily bread, don't we? We uh, say grace before our meals, uh, but I wonder how often we actually stop uh, and we wonder at God's abundant goodness to us. That's I think the opportunity that we have in a harvest service like that, that's the opportunity uh, which uh, I'd encourage you to take today. And actually, it's the opportunity I feel I've had over uh, recent uh, days and weeks as I've thought about uh, this chapter in front of us, uh, particularly verses 9 and 10. Uh, you know, I must have heard the words of verse 9 many, many times before. I must have taken them in 
like a, a daily bread. But I don't know if I've ever really stopped and wondered at how profound the truths of verse 9 and 10 are. So uh, as I've had the opportunity to stop and think about these things in preparing this sermon, I've realised something more of how wonderful they are. God's grace to his people is staggering. It's abundant and it's life transforming. I need to hear these things. I think you need to hear these things too. And I'm sure the people that the Apostle Peter wrote to all those many years ago needed to hear this too. Because if you uh, were to read the whole of um, Peter's letter here, 1 Peter, to these um, believers who uh, he describes in various different locations, you'd see that they really aren't having an easy time of it at all. Actually, I think you can see even just from the verses that we have in front of us, something of the difficulties that these believers may be going through. So in verse 11, look at the way that Peter um, describes them. He says that they are sojourners and pilgrims. There's something about them, I think, from those descriptions which says they don't quite fit. They don't quite belong. It says in uh, verse 12 uh, that people might speak against them. Uh, actually, more than that, these people might consider them to be evildoers. They might consider them to be morally corrupt in some way. Uh, and elsewhere, throughout uh, this relatively short letter, uh, Peter talks regularly about the trials that these believers are facing, uh, the difficulties and the suffering. Now, I know that our situation now is considerably different to the situation that Peter's readers found themselves in then. We don't have a, a tyrant like the Emperor Nero ruling over us. Uh, but I think there are similarities too. I think as Christians now, I think we can often feel like sojourners and pilgrims, can't we? I think we can feel like we're a people who don't quite fit, who don't really belong. Because Christians now, we know what it is to be spoken against for what we believe, uh, to be considered to be evildoers. I think we know that we are in the minority. I think we know what it is to feel that life is pretty tough and that sometimes it feels like the discouragements outweigh the encouragements. I wonder if any of that is true for you, either individually or as a church. We sang um, that song just now, didn't we, that hymn, The Church is One Foundation. Uh, uh, and on one side it reminds us of who the Lord Jesus is. He is the foundation of the church. Uh, but it talks also about what the church experiences now. And I'm sure this would have been true both for Peter's readers then and for us. It's got this uh, line, though, with a, a scornful wonder, men see her sore oppressed by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. And knowing that, knowing the, the scornful wonder, maybe the pity, maybe outright hostility that society views the Church of Christ with, what does that do to us? What does that do to us? Well, I think it can make us shrink in on ourselves, losing confidence, um, losing ground, losing our voice. I don't know if any of you have read um, the book from a few years ago by Jordan Peterson called 12 Rules for Life. Um, now, I haven't read the whole book, so I can't 
come and recommend it to you in any way. Uh, but I have read the first chapter, uh, and in that chapter, uh, Jordan Peterson describes the way that two lobsters conduct themselves uh, during and after a fight. Uh, he explains that the dominant, the victorious lobster will uh, puff itself out, it will make itself bigger than it is, it will strut around and show that it's boss, while the defeated lobster will shrink back, uh, becoming, in Jordan Peterson's words, scrunched up, inhibited and droopy. Well, I wonder if that description of the defeated lobster there could be used as a picture of the church now in the Western world, scrunched up, inhibited and droopy. In the face of a foe that has puffed itself up and is strutting around, the church shrinks in on itself, giving way and losing ground. Well, in this context, I think what Peter writes in this letter is an essential read. Uh, Here, Peter is writing to a group of discouraged and troubled believers, maybe like us, who must have felt and looked defeated, maybe like us. And yet, through passionate words, what you would expect from Peter, and beautiful words, he reminds them of what the gospel is, and who their Lord is, and where they are going, and who they are. And these things act as prop after prop to help them stand up and keep on going. Well, we're looking, as I say, at just a few verses today. But even here, I think we find ample reason, as Christians, to stand tall and to keep going, to not shrink back. I think if you look at verses 9 to 12... You could say here that Peter's appeal is twofold. He wants them to remember two things which will help and encourage them to stand tall and keep going. The two things are these. Remember who you are and remember why you're here. Remember who you are and remember why you're here. So that's how we're going to spend most of our time today. Thinking firstly about who we are and then secondly about why we're here And then uh, we'll finish off looking at verses 11 to 12, where we see some of the ways that these two truths can impact or should impact our lives now. So let's start with the first point from verse 9. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. And I'm using the word remember there because what Peter writes here is a reminder. Uh, It's a reminder of things that had already been revealed. Uh, Peter isn't writing new truths in verse 9. Instead, he's lifted these descriptions from the pages of the Old Testament and now applied them to New Testament believers, followers of Christ. So um, if you were to look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, for example, you'd find a very similar description there in Deuteronomy chapter 7 as we find here. There, in verse 6, God's people are described as being a holy people to the Lord, a chosen people, and a special treasure. Peter must have had these words in his mind as he wrote verse 9 of this chapter. Or you could look to Exodus chapter 19, when God meets Moses on Mount Sinai, just before giving the Ten Commandments. And there, God has these words to Moses to give to the people of Israel. He says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me. 
a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So there's not anything particularly new about what Peter says here, but there was the need for people to be reminded of these things. Uh, There was the need to realise that these descriptions given to the Old Testament Israelites back then applied to them now and found their fulfilment in them, the New Testament Church of Christ. So for us, for us now in this room, verse 9 is for us. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we are that chosen people. We are that kingdom of priests. We are that holy nation. We are that special possession. Stop and wonder about these things. John Piper said that verse 9 contains one of the most dense and rich descriptions of what a Christian is. This is dense and it's rich. And we would do well today, I think, to stop and wonder as we remember who we are in Christ. So let's think about the first description we have here of us, of the church. We are a chosen generation. And that word um, chosen is so personal, isn't it? If you are a Christian, you have been chosen personally by God to be something, to be someone. He's chosen you to be part of a generation, that's the word here, who are his. He's chosen this church to be a light in this part of his creation. And so looking at this, you can say that humanity can be split into two contrasting groups. That's why verse 9 starts with the word, but to create a contrast between two people groups, two nations or generations, um, humanity can be split into two simple groups, those who believe and those who don't, those who will be glorified and those who will be shamed, those who have been chosen by God to be his people and those who haven't. So for me, as I read these things, I think what a relief, what a privilege, what a joy to be one of those whom God has chosen. Now, how do you go about choosing something or choosing someone? Back in the dreaded school days, I remember that in a sports team, the best people would always be chosen first, wouldn't they? And the rest of us would be just hoping that we wouldn't be last. When you go to a supermarket, you choose the nicest looking fruit, don't you? When um, a plate of biscuits is presented to you after the service, you'll probably choose or at least want to choose the chocolate one and not the plain one. When we're made to choose, we tend to choose the best, don't we? We tend to choose the strongest, the most worthy, the tastiest or the ones with the most potential. What about God? How does God go about choosing? It's worth looking back to those verses from Deuteronomy chapter 7. Here in verses 6 to 8, Deuteronomy chapter 7, it says this. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Now listen to this next bit. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, because you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you. Why did God choose you and me? 
Why did he set his love on us? It wasn't because of any merit or any value in us. No, God chose us because he loves us. It's so simple and yet it's so, so profound. God looked at you and he loved you just because it's abundant grace that we read of in this chapter. There's no room for pride here, but there's plenty of room for praise. Well, let's think about why uh, or what God has chosen us for. It's not for something uh, mundane or temporary. It says here in verse 9 that he has chosen us for royalty. Look at how verse 9 continues. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Now, uh, in what sense are we uh, royal? Well, I think you could answer that in two ways. We're called royal here because we serve a king in his household in that respect. We're royal, but we're also royal because we've been brought into that royal household by the king. We've been adopted into his household and made royal. Well, the language that follows this, this statement of royalty is equally awesome, I think. Think of us as being royal is strange. It doesn't seem to reflect our current situation. But then maybe neither does the term holy. And yet that is what verse 9 says, that we are now in Christ. We are a royal people who wear the king's robes. And we are a holy, righteous people because of this. Our dirt is covered by his purity. Stop and wonder. These are wonderful descriptions of the church. These are wonderful descriptions of individual Christians like you and me. Perhaps the next description, though, which I find most wonderful of all. You are his own special people. It's wonderful, isn't it? We are his own special people. He's chosen us to be his, to be his own, to be near him, to be precious to him. One of the reasons why I think this is so wonderful is because this is the same language that's used early in the chapter to describe the relationship between God the Father and his son Jesus Christ. In chapter 2 verse 4 it is Christ who is described as a living stone chosen and precious but now those descriptions are put onto us. In verse 5 the church is described as being living stones like Christ and here in verse 9 we the church are described as being chosen and precious like Christ. Can you see the similarities here between how Christ is described and how the church is described? And so if that is the case, if this is how God regards us, like he regards his own son, why should we care what others may think? Why be ashamed in front of strutting people who may dismiss you or insult you or uh, criticise your faith? Why shrink back in on yourself when God is for you like this and sees you as his own precious person? Can you see that in these descriptions, Peter is urging us to remember who we are. We are chosen and we are precious. We are royal and we are holy. We are those who have been loved simply because God is full of grace and mercy. These truths should fill our hearts and cause us to stand tall. 
remember who you are. But I think the uh, other descriptions of the church in this passage should make us remember something else too. Not just who we are, but why we're here. And this brings us on to a second point. Remember why you're here. Now, um, I, I, I'm still only 43, if I'm allowed to say only. I think for some people that's an only. For some people that is definitely not an only in the room. But not really old. Uh, but I am finding that as the years go by, I am becoming e- uh, increasingly uh, forgetful. Um, even this week, I was packing my bag for work and um, I went downstairs to get my water bottle. And by the time I got to the kitchen, I, I'd totally forgotten why I was there. I was looking around the room for, for some prompt that might help me, uh, or might help jog my memory in some way, uh, which would tell me why I was there. Maybe one of the problems that we have as Christchurch is that we have also forgotten why we're here. We got confused about our purpose. And so here in the midst of these descriptions in verse 9, which reminds us of who we are, Peter also tells us something of why we're here. So think about that description of the church as a royal priesthood. Now, uh, previously, the priesthood was uh, limited to a certain type of person from a certain family line. To be a priest, you would need to be a man from the tribe of Levi. But Peter here is saying that, in fact, all believers, male and female, the whole church is a priesthood with a priestly work to do. What's the work of a priest? Well, as Spurgeon suggested, it was twofold. It involved interceding and it involved instructing. It involved uh, interceding, representing people to God by mediating on their behalf and bringing acceptable sacrifices to God. But it also involved instructing, representing God to the people, instructing them and being a voice for God in the world. And I think that is what Peter has in mind in the second part of verse 9. He says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Why are we here? What's the purpose of this church? Why did God choose us and bring us into his royal family. Well, here Peter says that the reason is that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Your God-given purpose as a Christian and our God-given purpose as a church is to proclaim the Lord's praises. That is why we're here and although you could say there's, there's various ways that we could proclaim God's praises, we can proclaim his, uh, his praises to him in song or in prayer, we can proclaim his praises to each other. I think Peter's primary focus in this letter seems to be on evangelism. It seems to be the need and priority to proclaim these praises to the world around us. Peter sees a dark world which needs the light of the gospel And he says, in effect, to these believers then and to us now, that's why you're here. This is your mission. This is your purpose to proclaim to the needy people around you who are stumbling in the dark 
how marvellous, how wonderful the light is of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. So I think we need to ask ourselves both individually and collectively as a church, how are we doing at this God-given task? How are we doing? Is it true that for you, for me, for us, that we have this at the essence of our being, that we live out the purpose we've been created for and called for, which is to proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvellous light. I think as I think about these things, I can readily acknowledge that I could be doing a lot better. And if that's the same for you too, that's true for you, I think it's good to consider why that would be Why is it that we're not proclaiming God's praises as clearly or as passionately as we ought to be? And I guess there's all sorts of ways of answering that. Um, But I think it's fair to say that for me, a big part of the reason is that I so easily forget both the light that I am now in, in comparison to the darkness of being without Christ. I forget the realities that Peter has been putting forward in verse 9. I forget the marvellous light that I am now in due to Jesus Christ. And I also forget the darkness that I was in before I became a Christian and the darkness that this world is still in now. I forget the seriousness of the situation. And so here Peter sets up in verse 9 a contrast between two states. He says, once you were in darkness, now you are in light. Remember this, once you were in darkness... Now you are in light. You need to remember this. He says, once you were not a people, now you are the people of God. Remember this. Once you had not received mercy, now you have obtained mercy. I think Peter writes these things here because he knows that we forget the gospel. If we forget who we are now, if we fail to see the Lord's abundant mercy to us and his marvellous light, if we forget how dark the darkness is, well, we will not proclaim the gospel as we should. If we forget, if we fail to fulfil the purpose God has created us for, what a situation that is to be in. But actually, I think verses 11 and 12 tell us that the problem is even greater than this. If we forget these gospel truths, if we forget who we are, and if we forget why we're here, it's not just that we fail to fulfil our purpose as gospel proclaimers, we'll also find ourselves drifting back into the darkness we were called from. And so Peter urges his readers in verses 11 to 12, to live as sojourners and pilgrims, to live lives which are compellingly different. And that's what I want us to think about just for a few moments in closing. Our our third and final point is that we should live compellingly different lives. We should live compellingly different lives. I was in um, Westminster on Wednesday uh, going to a conference with a colleague and uh, before we went in, we went into a coffee shop to grab some lunch. Uh, Well, as we were there sitting in the coffee shop uh, looking out onto the street, uh, we saw a a fairly odd-looking man uh, outside wearing a a sandwich board which had um, the words printed on it, uh, Repent, Jesus will come soon. 
Uh, not only that, he also had the word repent printed all over his shirt. Uh, and as we noticed the man, he came over and knocked on the window and started pointing at us. Uh, repent, he was mouthing at us. Repent. Well, I had my Bible in my bag, so I, I reached out for my Bible, picked it out of my bag and held it up uh, to the window. And when the man saw this, he kind of nodded to himself and then turned to my colleague and started mouthing him, repent, you too, <laughs> repent. Well, uh, an interesting experience, but um, I wonder, I wonder if perhaps we as a church and as Christians often fall into one of two errors. Either uh, we're so distinct that we put people off, and that might be true of the man that I encountered on Wednesday, or we're so indistinct that there's nothing to differentiate us from the world and nothing to attract people to Jesus. I wonder uh, if either of those problems is true for you or for this church. Are you unhelpfully distinct, or maybe even worse, are you compromisingly indistinct? I think Peter seems to be more concerned about the latter issue, as he writes here. He seems to be urging these believers to realise their difference and to live like they are different, but in a helpful, in a compelling way. You are different, Peter is saying. You are, verse 11, sojourners and pilgrims. You are different, so live like it. Live like you are a royal priesthood. Live like you are a holy nation. Notice how strong Peter is in his plea here, verse 11. Beloved, I, I beg you, I beg you, he says, I beg you to live differently. And Peter's concern here is for their holiness. He's saying that, he's saying that they should live out the reality of who they are. Make sure that your behaviour matches your identity. Don't fall into the trappings of this world. Notice what Peter says in verse 11. Abstain from things that will war against your soul. What an important description that is for us to grasp. There are things that will war against your soul. There's things that will make you forget who you are. There's things that will dim the excellency and joy that you should feel at being a chosen, precious person. There's things that will stop you proclaiming the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Now, Peter's concern in this part really is to do with fleshly lusts. And that may be the type of sin that tempts you and wars with your soul. But it could be something else. All sorts of things can war against our souls and dim or destroy our love for the Lord. I think our task as believers is to identify these things. What are the things that cause you to drift from Christ? Whatever they are, Peter would urge, as he says in verse 11, that you abstain from them, that you remove them, that you cut them off and flee. It's worth us taking time to think what those things might be. That's a negative command that we find in verse 11. There's dangers that will war against your soul. You need to identify them 
and you need to abstain from them. But notice there's a positive command in Peter's words here too. In verse 12, Peter tells us how we ought to live instead. He says that we should conduct ourselves in an honourable way in this world. And so I think we can say that as a church and as individual believers, there must be a noticeable difference about the way we are and the way we live. We are to be different but we're to be compellingly different. We're to be different in a way which is positive and good. How can this be? Well, I think this is how these four verses go together. I think what Peter shows us here is that the more we grasp who we really are and the more we realise why we are here, the more we will be equipped and enabled to live lives that are compellingly different. Verses 9 and 10 act as a type of fuel that make verses 11 and 12 a reality for us. Now that's why I think it's important to stop and wander today. It's an opportunity that we have in harvest. It's an opportunity that we have with this word in front of us. I hope the opportunity we have today will be to stop and wander at these things and that they will transform us. We need to stop and wonder, don't we, at the blazing light of verse 9 and 10 to realise how dim and flickering the offers of this world are in comparison. One thing that really struck me as I read this passage was in verse 12, how it shows something of the impact that our lives can have on the world around us. If we live in compellingly different ways, if we live determined to do good works, which is what Peter mentions here and and several other times in his letter, this in itself is a means of gospel proclamation. A holy life proclaims the beauty of the gospel, the honourable conduct in the face of scorn or slander or opposition will in itself be a great impact, will have a great impact compellingly different lives. Lives lived as sojourners, lives lived as pilgrims, but those who are committed to good works have an awfully huge impact, a wonderful impact in itself for the kingdom. I hope that in itself is an encouragement to you. This church is a task of proclaiming Christ's praises to a needy world. But you and me, as individual believers, have the privilege of living for Christ day by day. So remember who you are. Remember why you're here. Commit yourself to doing good for him. Well, may we be able to have a legacy like that, which is mentioned at the end of verse 12. May the legacy of our lives, the legacy of this church, be, as it says at the end of verse 12, that people might glorify God on the day of visitation. May that be, Lord, for your glory.